0: Robert Madeline is the Chairman and Chief Strategist at FIPRA International Limited. From 2004 to 2016, Robert held numerous senior leadership positions at the European Commission, including Senior Advisor for Innovation, Director General for Communication Networks, Content and Technology, DG Connect, and as Director General for Health and Consumer Policy, (DG Sanko. He was a negotiator for the EU and UK in international trade and investment and also served in the cabinet of European Commission Vice President Leon Britton. Robert, thank you for your time. It's always a
1: pleasure. My pleasure. In
0: 2016, you authored a book, Opportunity Now, Europe's Mission to Innovate. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that book?
1: So that book was uh, the result of a mandate from President Juncker. He has developed what I think is a good practice of having outgoing directors general spend the year uh, contributing to thought leadership in areas where the commission needs to up its strength. And uh, the subject which uh, the president and I chose was innovation. At the time, we were halfway through the Horizon 2020 research and innovation program and looking forward to uh, already proposing what's going to come next. And of course, that's up for the decision this year. Basically, I came out with a conclusion that said, you know, Europe is quite good at innovation, but only in patches. So if somewhere like Lausanne, it's as good as Stanford at its scale in terms of method, but there are other bits of Europe which are not as good. What we need to do is learn from each other and continue to have a positive attitude to technology, but also to process, social, whatever innovation. So innovation is a mindset. It's not just about what tech companies do. Europe can do it, does it well in some places, but needs to level up. That was the basic message.
0: I think in the biopharma space, what we see is Europe has excellent – Excellent early stage R&D research and, and through phase one clinical trials can manage, but then there's a, a certain lack of liquidity when you start needing big money to go into clinical research, you know, phase two, phase three, when you start needing 300 million, 500 million, that's where Europe falls back a bit. And we're seeing that in some of the data. There was the capital markets directive that was, you know, all the rage and a lot of the discussion about 2013-2014 when you were there. Why do you think that didn't succeed, the capital markets directive?
1: So I think that the the reason is not risk-averse capitalists. That's a separate question. The reason is risk-averse nation-states. Sure. And the, the tragedy always with Europe is you know what to do, but you don't want to pull your sovereignty to do it. Living the current crisis of COVID, it's the same. Uh, I'm a big
0: fan of Eric Weinstein, who's the managing director of Teal Capital, one of the early firms who backed Facebook, Eric recently stated in his podcast, watching our supposed leaders contend with the pandemic, the boomer generation lacking any sort of precedent look like incompetent dolts. It's theoretically possible that gritty latch kid kids and digital natives would not fare any better, but we could scarcely do worse. I mean, do you agree that there's just been a, a failure of leadership
1: across the board? I would say, uh, firstly, it's not all about leaders. I, I think about it as a machinery of governance question. And I think if you look at the machinery, Uh, A decade ago, when I was doing public health and crisis management, we learned some lessons from swine flu, and we have not fully implemented them all. In particular, I think in Europe, since austerity, we haven't devoted enough resources to maintaining our capacity through annual exercises, training, uh, auditing our stocks. We've been less intentional than we needed to be. So it's a failure, but it's not. I don't think it's down to generations, and it's not just down to leaders.
0: Do you think that a lot of this is seeing healthcare as a cost and not a, an investment, sort of an infrastructure?
1: Yeah, I think it's worse than that. As you know, the the best investment in health is public health promotion prevention. Crisis preparedness is right up there. So it's not even in the healthcare segment. It's grossly undervalued and grossly underfunded.
0: I've got the data here pulled today. The UK has about 475 deaths per million as compared to Belgium's 751 deaths per million. I mean, that's quite staggering. But yeah, what's intriguing, I mean, the UK has done not better, not worse than most, sort of in the middle. But yet, if you look at the response in the media, it's getting absolutely savaged for its response. How much of this do you think is justified? How much of this do you think is just media trying to generate
1: views? Well, starting with the statistics, of course, these are not statistics that we can regard as really clean. Sure. Um, I was reading Daniel Defoe's uh, journal of a plague year from the 17th century in London. And even then, this sort of journalist of the time was saying, I rely on excess deaths. Right. How many more people are dying in this parish compared to last year? Because all the other figures are dirty. And in a way, that's the same today. So I'm very leery of making comparisons based on the headline numbers. On the question, why in the UK is there a lot of criticism? I think crisis communication and trust in institutions are always crucial to successful risk management. Trust is contested by the Brexit tensions and communication has not been the strong point of this administration. And I would say the Nadir so far was last night prime ministerial show, which could have been done better.
0: Yeah, if you look at what's going on in the United States, we're, we've been greeted to that show daily. <laughs>
1: i couldn't possibly comment, but I think that <laughs> these are these are very these are very context specific things sure there isn't actually an international contest in crisis communication, and the way you do it matters simply this time you have a top level communication that isn't clear that raises more questions than it answers in ten minutes, followed by a fifty page paper followed by a debate with the lawmakers frankly i 'd have done it exactly the other way around sure.
0: How much of this is just people don't know what to do, searching for answers that they don't actually have any easy answers?
1: Well, there are no easy answers. And I think one of the fascinating links between innovation, whereas Einstein said, if you knew the answer, it wouldn't be innovation and risk, which by definition is uncertainty is it's the same. COVID is a downside and innovation, we hope is an upside, but not always. Right. So people don't have the answers. What then are our default attitudes? You're right in Kahneman territory behavioral psychology. And actually, when governments say to their citizens around the world, shelter in place, they don't know what you're doing either.
0: What appears to be happening, if we look at some of the antibody tests that are coming out, is the disease is far more widespread. The disease rate for being asymptomatic is closer to 85%. Or there is a wish from some spheres of influence to try and open up a little bit within a certain constrained approach shall we say sort of what the swedes have done but yet this requires a certain political adjustment and a certain political will and strength do we need to adjust our approach
1: so i think that let's assume that it'll be at least another year maybe 18 months before we get a vaccine and it looks as if it would take at least as long to build herd immunity by any other means then we need to have a plan because 18 months is too long to tank the economy I think that the emerging wisdom is we're going to try loosening a bit but we might crack down again. Sure. And if you look at Germany and Seoul, that's what they've had to do. Even the better run national plans involve flexibility and a responsive approach, and I think that's probably what we'll end up doing at the moment. The main focus for public opinion is can I get to see my family and what about my summer holidays? Whereas I think the main focus for government has also to be, can we get back to normal? What we tend not to talk about enough is that the economic normal and the human factor go together. Yes. Many of the clients I work with, they have to ethically, they want to respect the fact that some of their workers are very cool about traveling on a three hop flight across Europe to do critical maintenance and others are not. And as long as there are risks, and as long as transport is complicated, which it certainly is at the moment, those two things combine to say, well, maybe I'll shelter in place. And so If we can't get trust and the human factor back to normal, we're not going to get the economy
0: back to normal. If you look at the IMF numbers, the International Monetary Fund, they are predicting the impact at 3% of GDP per month, which equates roughly to 50 billion euros a month in each country. That's 1.7 billion euros a day of negative cash GDP impact. I mean, that buys a lot of quality. How much of this though is political will? I mean, this is going to require politicians to stand up and say, okay, we're going to need to take more risk here but we also need to open up the economy because this is unsustainable. The problem is that decision seems to be becoming politicized. What do we need to do to try and open that up?
1: So benefit of hindsight, I think if the first victim uh, shares a lot more honestly and a lot more quickly, everybody else takes better decisions. There is an issue to be discussed about who knew what, when, and Mm -hmm. can we find better ways of sharing data? Even had we had all the best data from last autumn onwards we would still be facing uncertainties and on the uncertainties I think there you come back to the health system as a whole we need a social consensus on what makes sense none of us want to die none of us want our family to be very sick or die but we kind of have a health economics approach hardwired in our brain we know what makes sense the best way of bringing that out in modern medicine in my view is the Singapore approach I have a personal health account. If at the end of my life, I do what the French call acharnement thérapeutique, and I stay in hospital for the last six months of my life, I spend my account. And if I go the palliative route, I can pass the account on to my children. And as a financial incentive to think about the palliative route, which in general is more attractive to people than doctors think, I think the Singapore experiment or example is one that merits thought, because... When there is a crisis, it's too late to say we don't want to lose the economy for the sake of 25, 90-year-olds or something like that. People say that's heartless. The 90-year-olds are my family. On the other hand, we could do better at talking about death, disease, and cost all the time, and then we'd have a better social consensus on what the margins are.
0: Statistically, the the systems that respond the best – in those sort of fashions, are Singapore and Switzerland. And both of them have a certain amount of, shall we say, skin in the game, where the individual consumer has a lot more choice. I mean, this would be an enormous difference to many of the European healthcare systems, certainly the UK. How practical do you think that is, Robert, to try
1: and move? It will require a significant step shift in health professional culture. In a country like the UK, palliative care is underfunded, but it's there pretty much everywhere. The number of cases where end-of-life patients actually have an intelligent conversation with their managing physicians about the options are very limited. And the same is true in other countries such as France. I mean, if you have a late-stage cancer, you're 90-plus, you go and see the oncologist, he does surgery. He thinks he can save you. three years. The cost is understated. And then you say, well, I want to live. I don't want to say no to the doctor. That's not a balanced conversation. That's not patient centric. And I'm not saying that we go to uh, euthanasia or anything like that, but simply having a conversation about palliative care when it is an option is hard and it will require professional leadership.
0: If you look at the health systems and their response to COVID, for example, Again, looking at the UK, the concern about flattening the curve was we wanted to make sure we didn't overrun the system, and I think that was a viable concern certainly at the end of February and March. Generally, London runs 85-90% capacity around this time of year. They were running at 70%. What we're doing now is we're essentially rationing or removing any treatments for cancer, uh, cardiovascular disease, colonoscopies for, you know, men, prostate exams. There's going to be a hell to pay <laughs> coming down the road for this lack of six to eight months of diagnostics. How do you think we can make the system more flexible so we don't have these one size fits all solutions that are very bureaucratic?
1: Well, I think what we've learned there is that We need to go back to thinking about isolation wards and failover systems so that you can have sites which can become dedicated to infectious disease management in cases such as this. The second thing is, I don't know the data you probably do, clearly the degree of social distancing you need and for how long depends on your ICU capacity. Sure. And I think we need, you know, you ought to have excess capacity, you ought to have a 50% Additional workforce which is trained to do ICU if necessary for limited cases, and so you can you can drive that capacity up, and then that means less social distancing on your point about losing diagnostics, I think there is also a human behavioral thing that both physicians and patients have perhaps been too cautious in postponing this stuff, and there's a certain segment of the conversation where uh, physicians are saying, please, patients, come back. The dentist, my next door neighbor, he says, you know, I've been open to go on treating. Only one in three of patients who need a urgent treatment have been prepared to come. So I think that that's the other piece ICU capacity, ICU staffing capacity, uh, at least emergency qualification, and um, an awareness that there's this risk-risk feature that you ought to be doing your tests. That said, with a six-month delay in all preventive screening i actually don't know what the implied number would be but it's going to it's less hell than if the same proportion had contracted covid and taken it home so it's risk risk how
0: much of this is cultural the swedes against many Uh, European recommendations, a lot of hostility in the media. They said, okay, we're not going to lock things down. We're going to keep restaurants open. We're going to keep schools open, but we are going to social distance and we're going to isolate ourselves from the elderly population, which they've done. And the numbers out of Sweden are looking quite good. They're one of the lowest in the world right now from a death rate and their numbers are declining. I mean, how much of this is cultural and how much of this is just the administrative state making decisions that are more based on fact, I guess?
1: The evidence wasn't there. So you, you'd have to argue that it's about culture and previous exercises and wargaming. Because the evidence was incomplete, the numbers that the Swedes were relying on when they made their decisions didn't guarantee it would work out as well as it did.
0: They Based a lot of the decision on the uh, Diamond Princess data that came off the ship, they looked at that as sort of a case study and rolled the dice. That's true.
1: Yeah. No, I agree. But I think, I I mean, at at the same time, I would argue that today that's something we can learn from fast, but it's going to be hard to transfer lessons in real time. Sure. I'm actually assuming that things like the Swedish, German, Korean examples will become more relevant when we're on to the sore tooth where we're trying to uh, flatten the peaks as opposed to flatten the curve we're not always on we need to be more agile it may have to be more local and then i think those lessons become increasingly relevant
0: there's been some documents that have leaked out that imply that there was quite a large cover-up from the chinese government do you think there should be a coordinated effort have some punitive measures against the chinese government for what they've done
1: So I was reading an article in a Cambridge journal, Cambridge, UK journal, which suggested that this was a Dutch international public lawyer suggested that, you know, in theory, such possibilities exist in practice, probably not. My own understanding is that if there was a cover up, it was the local provincial government. I think you may well see that the Chinese state is not relaxed about cover ups either. I would not be sure that there was a decision at the very top level to run it secret for as long as possible. What I would take away from that is that we need to revisit the international health regulations. We need to double down on the duties of communication. And I would actually argue that the benefit to the WHO would be huge if the sources of scientific advice there were public and distinct from the director general. But Especially public, because I think what what Dr. Tedros lacked was publicly available, separate, almost siloed risk assessment expertise being put out at the WHO level to which he could point. And we understand why in an international organization that's hard to do. But every time we have a crisis, we improve the IHR, and this is a time to improve it.
0: Yes, because there's evidence the doctors certainly in Wuhan knew exactly what was going on. That was December 28th. And then you had that legendary now tweet on January 14th from the WHO saying there was no human to human transmission. There's a big breakdown there because the doctors certainly knew locally what was going on.
1: So that's two weeks lost. But for me, sitting in Europe, the key period was between the middle of January when already the Health Security Committee, the ECDC, and national officials were raising certain flags, and the commission was saying, action point, check your PPE stock. Then two months were lost in national administrations. And so the big issue, I think, the actionable issue at national and collective level in the European Union is how can we be much more attentive to these early Soft signals.
0: Sure, but again, on January fourteenth, you were being told by the WHO that there was no human to human transmission, and then you had the political fallout from Trump on the January twenty eighth, putting in the travel ban, which was universally seen as um, quite aggressive. Should we be looking more at social media signals and trying to pick this up independently? Even when I was
1: in DG Health at the Commission, we used uh, social media trackers as well as the channels of formal public health international diplomacy to identify what was going on. So I I think the answer is yes, but that's not rocket science. The failure, (laughs) I think, is in the last 10 years, we have broken the chains of command and communication vertically in our member states. If if we think back to 9-11, global health security got on the agenda because the U.S. had an anthrax scare after the Twin Towers. It's biosecurity that drives top people, not public health. And once the terrorist threat became bombs and machine guns, rather than biosecurity, we have all at top level taken our eyes off the ball, but that's fixable. The good news is the more tragic the error, the more fixable it is. So in this case, it's
0: fixable. Do you think it's also just the tug of war, certainly from a European perspective, the tug of war between the member states and the EU on health competency as well? That's still not clear.
1: I actually uh, am more doubtful of that. I mean, I I ran two competence-extending crisis management games, firstly health from 2004 to 2010, and then cybersecurity. And when I came to cybersecurity in 2010, I said, you know, this is health all over again. There are viruses out there, and we don't have collective means to control them. The difference between the two was that in the absence of a sort of G7 top-level awareness that cyber mattered as much as biosecurity, there was much more member state resistance to good network information security coordination. It's got a lot better since 2010, not because of uh, officials, but because of crises. And I think therefore on on the public health side, there wasn't a reversal of the post swine flu willingness to cooperate, but there was a lack of attention and resources And the level of participation in health security committee dipped below the level where somebody could go back to capitals, pick up the phone and talk to the prime minister's office and that's the big mistake. So it's really machinery of government. It's not a planned competence battle in my opinion. You're
0: a very rare person that operated on both the technology and health side of the European commission. Moving away a bit from, from COVID-19, One of the things that we see happening in Europe that's concerning us, as we were discussing earlier, is we see Europe has fantastic basic science, great early stage R&D, monoclonal antibodies were invented here. But the fact is, Europe is having a problem carrying them to market. Fully 80% of all global biotech in 2019, including European biotech, was acquired by the United States. What practically and tactically should the EU do to try and keep some of this technology developed here to capture the late-stage value creation, assuming Europe wants to?
1: So I think that, firstly, does Europe want to? I mean, Europe has, Vice President Skinas has the task of not just promoting but defending the European way of life. The European way of life depends on continuing to own about 20-25% of world GDP. We're not going to own it by and own it by invading other bits of the world, as we've done in the past. We will only uh, own it by innovating and selling the innovation elsewhere. In order to do that, therefore, it's a no-brainer. You need to not just have nice ideas, but take them all the way to scale and market. So what's missing? I would say we need much more European development bank thinking, which we don't, let me be critical in an area I'm not an expert on, which we don't get from the EIB the IB is too conservative, you need much more a sort of risk-taking development bank capacity in the developed world. The assumption that we don't need it, we just do university research and it trickles into the market, is clearly no longer true. So I would say it's a capital allocation, political will, risk-taking challenge. People feel that
0: because there's public funding early on, and if you put two or three million, or in the case of the Oxford vaccine that's come out, 25 million pounds, that that then should make it a free public asset. Canada and Chile, to name just two, have proactively passed compulsory licensing laws that any drugs which come out are shown effective as COVID 19 will have their medicines supplied as generics. Uh, We recently had last week MEP Peter Lise from the German government saying that the rendizivir of Gilead should be declared a public asset under COVID-19. What do you think would be the impact of passing some of these compulsory licensing laws on these COVID drugs?
1: I, I think the answer is that's not a winning strategy. Uh, you can drive activity offshore pretty quick by doing that. I mean, it's a, it's a little known fact that uh, compulsory licensing has always been a core design feature of the patent system. So the problem is not having the power, the problem is using it. And I think it's much cleverer to go with doing the best innovation, having the right clusters and getting the capital to the right places. And I, I, I think we need much more intentional, I would say, tax incentives to get more middle class money flowing into critical mass innovative research risk taking. That's going to require quite a
0: cultural change because the Europeans, as a a broad base, do not have much exposure to the stock market and the capital markets. It's just not whether they realize it or not through government pensions they
1: may, but not uh, not necessarily through their own wallets. So maybe maybe the uh, the COVID crunch because it'll have a different design than the than the 2008 crisis, the other solutions to where to put your money will get so lousy that people say, <laughs> let's try a big bet on an innovative medtech play. The cynical <laughs> positive. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, the EU
0: was concerned about orphan drug pricing, OMPs. We've seen a, a drop of 50% in OMP designations and drugs coming to market since 2016. Literally, the market's halved in Europe do you think the OMP regulation for orphan drugs has been a success overall? And what do we need to do to fix it? Because right now it seems to be rolling off the cliff.
1: I don't know to what extent it's the regulatory framework that's leading to that change in the pipeline. I think that the OMP was a big success. That's pretty much the problem. You know, <laughs> said, Here's an incentive, here are the criteria go for it. Everybody went for it. Now you have questions whether the criteria need to be adjusted to prevent the being gamed, maybe. You also have the question around vaccines, for example, AMR. Do you actually need to fold additional criteria in? Because the only OMP is solving only one of the drivers of undersupply. And I think that's one set of problems. The other set of problems is the time to market through the regulatory channels, the payers' capacity to pay, the bureaucracy of price negotiations everywhere, which of course most companies think they win at, but whether long-term they do is a question. So there's a whole set of problems, but I don't think OMP in itself is actually a problem. It has been a great success. It could be fine-tuned. I would argue it's a model that should be extended to other areas where there is inadequate supply of innovation to meet medical needs. That would be a great idea. Practically, how could that happen, though? Would
0: it start with the commission or would you have to go to the member states? If you want to change the law, then you'd go to
1: the commission. And I think this is an area where we need a fresh strategic look in the light of COVID. COVID certainly puts the emphasis on the fact that the vaccine field is under-resourced and doing sort of telethons, frankly, it's below the dignity of 21st century joined-up government. So we actually need a a solution where governments decide what they want and then they organize it instead of just hoping for charity. I think AMR, which has been on the agenda forever and is not being fixed, also deserves that. So I would not exclude that some aspects of the current criteria need to be adjusted, but I would say that we need a much more aggressive scope so that we don't have just an OMP regime, we have an unmet need regime. Sure. Sure but my point about the member
0: states is it's often the member states who have been pushing back on the commission about pricing of orphan drugs for example and that again gets to this yes. that gets to this tug of yes. war between where the competencies
1: lie no i understand and, and i i think that, but i think even there the question is not about the competencies the problem is about the money sure member states are wedded to two incompatible things one is universal access and the other is the the payer model we're going to have to have significant co-payment going forward if the European health systems are going to preserve access. You were
0: heavily involved in moving the EU towards a focused and unified approach to health data. How do you think the EU is doing in general with regards to the global competition of usage of health data?
1: And how do you think it can do better? This is a, a cultural change that we need towards our health data. I have always said data is not the new oil, it's the new blood. If I can save lives by contributing my genome to a university it's not just that i might want to do it i I ought to be conscious of my ethical duty to do it now when it's done by government fiat even in small usually well-run countries like iceland problems can arise but basically i think putting data together where it saves lives and helps people has to become a no-brainer ethical duty then you have to provide stronger safeguards to counterbalance the stronger duty. I think what GuardTime and Estonia have shown is that new technology really helps there. And so you can really create trust by punishing abuse of central data stores and protecting them very strongly. And then the third piece, I think, is what is it that actually motivates people? It's not a bureaucrat or a retired bureaucrat saying, it's your ethical duty to share your genome. It's understanding what happens to it next. And the secretiveness whereby people say thanks for the data and goodbye, instead of saying thanks for the data, we're going to send you a monthly newsletter saying you can be proud. Your data has contributed to this success and this success and this success. That's the other cultural piece that needs to change. So citizens, it's a new ethical duty. Innovators, it's a new communications duty. Governments, it's a heightened cybersecurity duty. If everybody did their bit, You begin to spiral upwards. The other point I'd make is that the big solutions help to drive the cultural change. So you need European health data space. But actually, small solutions work as well. The collaboration on oncology data in Europe, which I would characterize as a bottom-up innovation, where cancer clinic by cancer clinic, very, very rare data about third-line use of innovative molecules is made available to physicians who've never used that molecule before. That's amazing. And it's done without an ounce of government intervention. It's done in full compliance with all the rules. And that, in a way, is a new sort of innovation in the health data space where, like all innovators, the solution flows like water around the alleged rocks. Is GDPR a rock? GDPR is a rock, but it's not an insurmountable cliff. (laughs) So water is flowing
0: suitably for you. You're okay with the GDPR as it's currently
1: written. I didn't write it. Um, (laughs) There are some key bits like having a health exclusion, which I was um, uh, able to help ensure the presence of. But I was always struck by what the guys at Rovio, you know, the Angry Birds team up in Finland told me. They said, you know, if we know what the rule is, like GDPR, we design it in and it's not a cost. No, legacy compliance might be a cost, but we're designing new games. We design them compliant by design. The fact that they're compliant by design is a selling point, what's not to like? And so the best innovators know how to do it. Uh, I think that with GDPR, the, the, the lead time for implementation was almost too short, but it wasn't as much too short as can happen with basic changes in manufacturing standards, for example. So it's not too bad, I would say. The real problem with GDPR is resource for implementation. Thinking about that a little bit. Even the best data protection regulators, let me take the Dublin example. Sure. They're really saying, please come and see us. Let's co-create a GDPR compliant solution to the innovation you want, because we want health innovation as well. But they don't have enough people, there aren't enough hours in the day. And why aren't they? Because it's like the public health promotion dilemma. It's not important enough for people to put taxpayers' money in sufficient quantity into doing it right, they only put extra money in when there's a problem.
0: From our standpoint, where we've had issues with GDPR, and I'll just use one example, we had a quite a large data set that we were working with with a university in the United States. One country's HTA lawyer said we were not allowed to bring that data into the HTA for fear that one of their citizens could be in the database. So I think there's just a capricious nature in some of the enforcement around GDPR that lends itself to abuse. And I want to say abuse that lends itself to a certain amount of unevenness of enforcement that makes it difficult to actually work around it.
1: Yes. so, So that's the tragedy of plurality that even in the EU legal order, If enforcement is disseminated and you don't have a central inspectorate, uh, you're only going to be as innovation friendly as the least friendly. There are places where lawyers grandstand in their regulatory function the way elected sheriffs do in, in the rural Midwest sometimes in the States, and that's a tragedy. But... It's not for sure that designing everything to be central so there's a single bureaucrat in a commission building doing it would make it better. That's just sort of the joy of human nature. Sure. And I think the, the other question, therefore, that applies to what extent are you enabled by a sort of compliant explain provision to be as an innovator in a position to say, well, you know what? You are country 26 on our list. Everybody else is happy. We're going to ignore you. And, you know, the problem is that that could tank the company. So, you know, even if the company lawyers say yes, the VC might say no. Sure. The real solution, I think, is like Rovio or Code, the oncology collaboration did. You find the toughest regulator and you fix them. Code was French compliant. Once you're French compliant, it's fine because other countries acknowledged that that's a good standard.
0: One final question, Robert. If you could, what's the one thing you wish you could change immediately to improve health policy based on what we've seen out of COVID-19? I
1: think crudely, it would be that that we flip the logic of health in all policies so that actually prime ministers commit to driving all policies for health. I think that the SDG framing, we're not very far from that. I think the The von der Leyen SDG Green Deal agenda went not very far from that, but we're still not quite there. And in reality, as the failures of government machinery demonstrate in early weeks of COVID management, we're a long way from it because health ministers are not top ministers. So I would say make more health ministers deputy prime ministers that would be a good way forward but nobody wants the health minister
0: job it's sort of like the joke about cio it means career is yeah, over
1: if it, if <laughs> yeah but if it's deputy prime minister so maybe that's the other it's the other way around make the deputy prime minister responsible for health robert thank you very much for your time it's been a pleasure great pleasure take care everybody.